Hello, and welcome to the 22nd episode of Breaching Extinction. This week, I had the privilege of talking to Natalie Mastic. Um, she's currently earning her PhD at the University of Washington studying parasite ecology, so we're going to dive in a little bit to her work throughout this episode, but she's been working with marine mammals since she was 17. She got her start at the Marine Mammal Center um, in California, where she's from. She got her BA in environmental studies and BS in marine biology at UC Santa Cruz in 2013, um, and then went on to... Um, Oregon State University, where she worked under Dr. Ari Friedlander, um, studying humpback whales and got a degree in wildlife science, her master's degree in wildlife science. So now she's working um, to better understand parasite ecology and has a partnership with Oceans Initiative. Um, she's also part of the Women in Marine Mammal Science Initiative, so she does a lot of really interesting work. Hope you guys enjoy this episode. Do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself and tell the listeners a little bit about like your background? Yeah, that sounds good. Um, my name's Natalie Mastic. I am a PhD student at the University of Washington in the School of Aquatic and Fishery Sciences. Um, I am working on a project looking at parasite burdens in southern resident killer whales. And my background, I've been working with uh, marine mammals for the last 10 years. Um, I worked on southern resident killer whale pop, er, projects previous to my PhD with Oceans Initiative. Okay. And um, before that, I got a master's with Ari Friedlander doing um, like a behavioral foraging, a foraging behavior study, looking at how humpback whales work together when they're bubble net feeding. Um, nice. Yeah, and um, yeah, so now I'm kind of more on the laboratory side of things, not on the field side, but um, I still get to work with whales, which is cool. Yeah, that's super awesome. Um, so tell us a little bit about your current research project. Okay, um, so my current research is looking at um, how infected killer whales, the southern residents, are um, with parasites today and seeing how those infections have changed over time. So seeing if the infections that we're seeing today are more severe or um, kind of status quo um, comparing infections uh, over the past 100 years, I would say. Yeah. Okay. So what interests yeah. you about um, parasite ecology? Um, well, it's actually, so my background is looking at foraging ecology. So I like to look at how... Um, animals eat and how ecosystems interact and parasites do this on a whole different scale. It's like these interactions that are completely invisible to us, but could really be making a difference in animal health, um, that nobody's really noticed yet. So it's kind of like this, uh, invisible world that has this unknown effect. So it's just this mystery that I find really fascinating. Um, which is how I got into it, yeah. That's really cool. So walk us through how you conduct your research. Okay, um, so I look at um, fecal samples. I did look at your podcast, and I noticed that you had interviewed Deborah Giles. Yes. Um, so I use samples that are collected by her and Sam Wasser, and um, I basically do what any veterinarian would do on a dog poop sample. I look for parasite eggs. And, um, 
using those eggs, I can figure out what species of parasites are infecting killer whales and how severe those infections are. Mm-hmm. Um, and then part of my project is also looking at the Puget Sound as a whole and how parasite abundances, so how many parasites are in the environment, okay. has changed over time. Okay. Um, yeah, so for that, I'm actually looking at, I use the Burke Museum up in Seattle. They have a fish collection. So I dissect fish from the past century and see how the parasites in those have changed because those are the fish that killer whales eat. And so the parasites they have are likely being passed on to the killer whales. Okay. So obviously, like, you are not finished with your study yet, but based on what you have observed, have you seen a change in parasites in the killer whales and, I guess, in the Puget Sound um, so far? Um, It's too soon to say with the killer whales. Um, Mm -hmm. In Puget Sound, it's looking like that there has been an increase, though this is all preliminary. Um, And that's an increase in parasites in general, not only the parasites that are infecting killer whales. But that's a pattern that we've seen across the world. There's evidence that the parasites that infect marine mammals have been increasing as marine mammals have been recovering. Uh Um, So while our southern residents are doing really poorly, other marine mammals in the area, like sea lions and seals, Uh are doing really well. And so they are harboring the same parasites that want to infect killer whales. Okay. And by having greater populations of other marine mammals around, it's increasing the risk that killer whales are getting those parasites too. Okay. Um, So is that like the main reason why we're seeing an increase in parasites, theoretically? Theoretically, yes. Okay. Awesome. Um, So what would be the long and short-term effects of parasites in killer whales? Um, Long-term effects could be... um, With severe infections, uh, that's a ton of, these are basically parasitic worms that live in their stomachs and in their intestines, taking up a bunch of the resources that killer whales are eating. So not only are killer whales not eating as much because of the decline in salmon, if they're having really big parasite burdens, then we're also seeing potentially parasites taking up a greater percentage of the energy that killer whales are supposed to be getting from the salmon they eat. So long-term, it could speed up the starvation process. Okay. Um, Short-term, it's just requiring them to eat more to make up for the parasites that they have. And that's definitely not good right now since there's not as much salmon. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Huh. Um, so uh, we've seen recently that the southern residents are not hanging out in their historic ranges. Has this affected your study at all? Um, not, not really, not yet. Okay. Um, so I, the only direct, um, direct use of killer whale data that I have is I'm using those poop samples collected uh-huh. in the Puget Sound. So we're still, if it's affecting anything, it's just affecting that resource. Right. Like, depending on how far we can go to get these poop samples. Okay. Um, but I haven't expanded my search past the Puget Sound yet in terms of the historical data. Okay. 
Um, so could we potentially use like the data that you find to implement different like policies or um, like change any environmental regulations? Well, so it's it's really hard to control parasite populations okay. um, because they have these complicated life cycles, like the ones that I'm seeing or the ones that I'm studying, those parasitic worms, mm-hmm. they start, so their eggs get pooped out by the killer whale. Okay. And then those eggs develop in the water column and get, they get eaten by a copepod. Okay. And then those copepods get eaten by a fish and then another fish and then it goes all the way up back to the killer whale. Mm-hmm. So there are so many stages of this life cycle that it's really hard to intervene in any of them. Sure. Um, but I, I think that uh, something that might actually come out of my research is, you know, a couple of years ago we saw Noah launch an intervention mm-hmm. to save J50. Yes. And um, that's actually what sparked my research because they found – they took a fecal sample from the group she was traveling with and they found that it was really heavily infected with parasite eggs. Mm -hmm. So that might've contributed to her decline in body condition. Okay. And if that was the case, um, then they were going to implement a deworming medication. Okay. So right now, because the population's so small, mm-hmm. to conserve the population, we have to focus on conserving individuals within the population. So if we see, you know, another situation like J50, where we have a calf, especially a female calf, that's in declining health, and we can diagnose parasites within her, then we can include deworming medication into their medical intervention. Okay. Uh, as a kind of a last-ditch effort to try to relieve part of the problem. Wow. That's really cool. Um, that's yeah. definitely, like, really innovative. I feel like that's got to be a lot of, of deworming medication. Is it yeah. in the form of a pill? Or, like, because my dog just had surgery, and I've been having to give her medication. I just, like, squirt it down her throat or give her a pill. I, I uh. imagine it's not that easy with killer whales. I actually have no idea how they would implement it, but I know that they've done this at places like SeaWorld where they have uh, whales in captivity because their their veterinary teams have to work on keeping their whales safe from parasites. Cool. Yeah. That's fascinating. Um, So we do have, like, a couple of standard questions that we usually always ask. Um, Okay. Based on, like what is going on with the whales and everything, what do you think are our best options for conserving the species? Like, what is it going to take to save them? I think it's got to be multifaceted. Like, we see a lot of different threats to this population, and I know that a lot of the conservation measures that have been proposed are kind of short-term solutions to get us kind of out of this crisis zone. Uh Um, But I think a lot of them are just going to be long-term solutions that we need to implement now. Yeah. Um, Like, you, the main threats to killer whales that we all know of are, um, you know, toxicity, so pollution in the water. Right. um, Too much ocean noise and not enough salmon. Right. So those three still need to be worked on. Mm -hmm. Um, I think of parasites as kind of more of a a short-term solution and um, to keep whales healthy in the short term. Mm -hmm. 
which could be really great. And my work is figuring out what proportion of the population are infected. And if, you know, if those infections are related to the body condition, then we can kind of use parasites as a diagnosing tool. We can keep Mm -hmm. monitoring for parasites in their, their fecal samples. Um, so I think, I think what we're doing to, you know, reduce ocean noise and reduce pollution and try to increase salmon stocks, we'll all need to keep going. For sure. And then, um, then the parasite side of things could be used as like more of a health monitoring tool. And if a situation like J50 happens again, oh, tool to intervene. Right. And that could potentially be vital given how few animals are left. Yes. Right now. Exactly. Um, so I know that like the um, Mike, I think, w- what is his number? He's like L something, but it's presumed that he's dead. Do you know if they've confirmed that or not? Because I looked on the Center for Whale um, Research's page and I'm assuming that's who makes the official like call on that. But do you mm-hmm. know if he's like officially dead or if it's still like a theory? I have no idea. Okay. I think checking in with the Center for Whale Research is the best um, option for up to date. Cool, cool. Uh, status updates. Yes. Um, yeah. And we're always encouraging people to kind of, you know, do their part, spread the word, learn more, or, you know, just make an effort to do what they can to save the whales. Is there anything that we can do as a community or as individuals to maybe reduce parasites? It sounds like probably not, but worth asking anyways. <laughs> um, I think it's really hard to, I mean, ask the community to reduce parasites. That's It's near impossible, but you should be on the lookout for these parasites because if they're infecting marine mammals, they are in the fish that we eat as well. Okay. So, um, our job as parasitologists is to remind you guys to flash freeze your fish or keep them frozen for a week before you eat them, uh, or cook them. And then those parasites won't be infectious to us. Okay. Good to know yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, and then I saw that you do a lot of work with the women in marine mammal science, which is how I got connected to you. Um, and that's something I have a a co-host who does some of the interviews too, but that's something we're really passionate about as well. So we'd love to hear about like what you do with that and what that whole institution is. Yeah, that I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, the women in marine mammal science initiative, um, was formed in 2017, um, for the the biennial marine mammal conference in where was it that year in Halifax we had a workshop we were trying to address the main issues that were keeping women in marine mammal science from getting to those positions at the end of a career that everybody wants Uh there seems to be a real big problem in our field with retention like there's plenty of attraction to marine mammal science everybody wants to work on it but Mm -hmm. We're finding that people that have higher degrees in this field can't find jobs, and women especially are falling out. So our whole goal with the Women in Marine Mammal Science Initiative was to identify those and kind of work day-to-day on reducing those barriers. So one of the things we do is we're super active on Twitter, and we have Women in Marine Mammal Science Wednesdays where we'll amplify um, accomplishments that have happened over the past week, like papers led by women mm-hmm. or, um, somebody 
defending their PhD nice. or a successful P, uh, successful field season or something like that. So there's there have been a couple studies that show that like men are really good at amplifying their own work and that like confidence helps them get jobs. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of trying to combat that by lifting each other up and giving each other that confidence that comes so naturally to others. That's really cool. Yeah, I think it's definitely like a cultural thing. Like men are taught, you know, um, to be more boastful and women are taught to be quiet. That's definitely something like I struggle with even in just talking to people sometimes. I kind of wait for people to ask me things so I don't want to speak up. And it's totally a cultural thing. I recognize it now, but that's super important. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, so you guys just kind of like lift each other up and stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Um, I was looking at... Um, like some of the statistics on that website and it was saying that like um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong it's like 30% of like scientists are women but in marine mammal science it's like 66% which is crazy it's Um, really high (laughs) yeah I noticed like when I was taking all my classes in college and participating in different programs like it was there was always like one guy and everybody else was like a woman and then I got like out into the actual like field and it's t- like it seems like there's a lot of like male dominated stuff still for sure um, yeah. but yeah I mean women in marine mammals is is huge so that's really awesome um, do you guys have any like plans for like future initiatives or like you know anything of that nature yeah, so um, for that that conference that we I told you about at the top, that um, we had a survey that went out to everybody in the Marine Mammal Society, mm-hmm. and so we're still analyzing the results of that. That was looking at barriers in the field, and um, we're publishing that soon. Um, we also are trying to expand our group into more of a mentorship network, so younger women in the field can talk to more established women in the field and get guidance on different parts of, um, you know, different phases of their career or school, finding jobs, mm-hmm. which is how we got connected, yes. which I was really excited about. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we're hoping to have, um, like a bigger Slack network coming up soon with different channels to connect people and have these conversations about, you know, being a woman in the field and then getting established and figuring out the best route forward. Absolutely. That's really awesome. Uh, there's definitely like, we need more people trying to make science inclusive for everybody because it's not, unfortunately. So I love yeah. that initiative. Um, so the one question that we always ask people at the end is what have, what can we learn from the Southern residents or what have you learned or share maybe a story that you've had interacting with them that's been particularly impactful? I have learned from the Southern residents that they're so resilient, which is such an inspiring thing. You know, like their population has been on the verge for as long as we've known about them, you know? Sure. And they are still clinging on. And I think given all of these circumstances, we have changed the environment in so many ways and made it so hard for them to live. Mm-hmm. And they're still holding on, and I think it's time for us to pay them back, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, yeah, I think just that resilience is really inspiring, and I 
just hope that we can pay them back before it's too late. Yes, I totally agree. They definitely, you know, as like a population, they're definitely fighters, but then like the individuals are fighters as well. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's definitely inspiring for sure. Cause like they just don't quit. And I think, you know, that just goes to show the power of like a positive attitude, if that's what you want to call it, that they have. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, we definitely need to, we need to get on it. I know the March for the Dams is happening like right now and mm-hmm. the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has like um, a comment section open. So hopefully we can, every, if everybody contributes, I feel like we can do it. But I've, the one unique thing that I love about this population is I've looked at a lot of endangered animals, but like the community around the killer whales is uh-huh. insane. Like it spans across the world and like the people of Washington have all come together and then like the native people are highly connected to them as well. So like I yeah. think we can do it. Um, it's just, we all have to make, you know, some progress, but yeah, I love their resilience too. Yeah, that is so true though. I have never seen a community so in- driven by a species. Mm-hmm. It's, Incredible, And I mean, in Washington, if you mention the Southern residents, everyone knows what you're talking about, yes. which it's hard to find a species like that anywhere else. And, yeah, you know, yeah, having having that kind of drive is really great because that's getting people involved. And I think that's exactly what that population needs right now. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, do you have any final thoughts? Um. I think that a lot of people are doing really, really great work to try to save this population, and I'm just a little piece of it, but I definitely want to thank Ocean's Initiative because they've been doing a ton of research on the Southern residents for a really long time, Mm -hmm. and my work is definitely part of their research program, Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's just a community effort at this point on you know, it's a multinational population. We have Canada and the U.S. and top scientists on both sides working on this. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I think I think having people from Canada and the U.S. working on this mm-hmm. and non-scientists fired about up about it on either side is so important. And um, yeah, that's about awesome. it. Cool. Well, I'm going to cut the recording here, but thank you so much for joining us. It was, this is definitely a good chat and I think gives us a new perspective on some things. Um, Oh, great. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yes.